you. You may be seated. You got it. Thank you, Avis, so much. Appreciate it. Hey, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you today. Grab your Bibles, your devices. Today, as Avis read to us so capably, John chapter 1, and we start with verse 1. Hey, welcome to our Advent series. We begin today a four-part series with you. And so we've called this the gift of the um, incarnation. And so we will talk about four gifts that we find throughout John chapter 1. Today we will talk about the gift of the word, and then next week the gift of light, and then after that the gift of adoption, and then the gift of grace upon grace. So powerful are these verses that we find in this chapter that we felt like this was the way for us to go in talking about and preparing you for the Advent season. So I want to say to you this morning that my voice is a little scratchy and I've had uh, just a a tough time with it all week and um, I'm praying that God helps me through this and he will as he did first service. I just try to not get too excited and, you know, project. You say, Mark, you don't project, you yell. Well, I just like to call it projecting, right? It sounds nicer. And so I'll try not to do that for all of you that have offered me, you know, your grandpappy's homemade cough syrup for this morning. I do appreciate that. I really do. If I'd have taken all of you up on all of those offers this morning, then there would be a different spirit moving up here for sure, right? Sure would be. But uh, thank you for your concern. I do appreciate that greatly. So let me talk to you about the gift of the word as we begin our Advent season together. And so as I look through this, I read through the Gospels, and wondered, I ask you a question, why, why are there four Gospels? I don't know if you've ever thought about that or not. Why are there four Gospels? Have you ever wondered? Well, a theologian some time ago, in fact, somewhere around A.D. 200, wrote that there are actually not four Gospels. And I thought that was interesting, so I began to read. He said there are not four Gospels, but a fourfold Gospel. That each gospel gives a very distinct perspective of the life of Jesus. And all four gospels are absolutely necessary for you and I in our understanding of who Christ is. So I came to the gospel of John, which is very different than the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So John kind of stands on its own as the four four gospels because... John chooses to leave out some very formative events in the life of Christ. One of the things that John does leave out is the Advent story, the story of the birth of Jesus. He says, well, Mark, come on. You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that you don't preach from the book of John on Advent because the story is not even there. And, and I know it's not there, but what I find woven throughout the entire book and especially Chapter 1 is these amazing threads of the incarnation. And it's such a powerful thing for you and I to explore together through these four weeks. So I began to look at all the Gospels. And what I realized is in the Gospel of Matthew, it reveals that Jesus came through or from Abraham through David. If you read Matthew chapter 1, it is that of the genealogy of Christ so that Matthew tells us that Jesus came from Abraham through David, that he is the Messiah. If you go to the next gospel, the gospel of Mark reveals that Jesus came from Nazareth, symbolizing and revealing that Jesus is 
a servant. Read Mark chapter 10 and you'll understand those words of Christ being a servant. And then you get to the gospel of Luke and it reveals that Jesus came from Adam. Thus he is the perfect man because the gospel of Luke is perhaps the most exhaustive and very detailed life account of Jesus on this earth. And so it's very powerful. But then when you get to the book of John, the book of John reveals something very different for you and I. It reveals that Jesus came from heaven, it does, and that it demonstrates that Jesus is God. It's an establishment of who he is. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talk a lot about <coughs> excuse me, the things that Jesus taught and the things that Jesus did, but yet John focuses on more who Jesus is. So the Gospel of John was written for you and I for a very specific purpose. A very specific purpose. And John says to you and I in John chapter 20 and verse 31, he says, here's the purpose. He said, but that these are written so that you may believe. What am I supposed to be believing here? And he says on, going on, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And if I believe in these things, here's what he says, that by believing you may have life in his name. And so when I look at the book of John, I realize it's written for both that of believers and skeptics. And what I know about Advent season is that this room on any Sunday morning can be filled with believers and skeptics. Those that are searching, those that are looking, those that are believing, and those that are struggling, that this room can be filled by all those. So what the John chapter 1 does, it makes a bridge for us. It bridges between all these positions that we find ourselves in life. In fact, the, the fourth century philosopher and theologian, Augustine, says about the book of John, he says, it is a pool in which a child can wade and also a pool in which an elephant can swim. I thought that was interesting. It's a pool in which a child could wade and also a pool in which an elephant can swim. And so what he's saying is this, that it has principles and ideas and truths that are very simple for us to understand, but yet it has this amazing depth that causes you and I to stand in awe of the vastness and the greatness of our God. And so that is the book of John. And then he said, as we read here in chapter 20, but he said, as apart from embracing and believing the incarnation, apart from you embracing the fullness of who Christ is in God, John says, hey, if you don't embrace that by faith, then there's no life in Christ for you. So what that says to you and I is this, that our understanding of the incarnation, as much as you and I can wrap our human minds around it, is not an option for us. It's not something that we can say, well, that's okay if I understand it, but it's really no big deal if I do not have some kind of working knowledge of the incarnation of Christ. No, no, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that it is absolutely very necessary for you and I to do it. Why? Because the incarnation of Jesus is the very air that you and I breathe. It is the very foundation that we build our walk in God on. That God clothed himself in flesh. That God lovingly laid down his deity for us. That he stepped into the mess and the sin of our life and our world. 
It's the greatest love story that has ever been written and ever been told. And that is Advent, the gift of the incarnation. And today I want to talk to you about the gift of the word. So we start in John chapter 1 and verse 1. And it says this, In the beginning was the word, by the word word. Could you write this Greek word for me, logos, L-O-G-O-S. You say, wait a minute, Mark. I have been in church for a while, and that is not the way you pronounce L-O-G-O-S, not logos. And some of you have heard other translations of the Greek word. Well, there are other cultural translations or pronunciations of that word. I just wanted to give you the pure Greek translation of the word, which is logos this morning. And so right by that word logos, it's important because... We can read this text as perhaps you have read and heard this text before, and you can brush over the depth of this. You can choose to just be a pool that you can wade in as a child, or you can see it as a pool that an elephant could swim in, and this word has everything to do with how you see how you see this text. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So I start with this thought. Just two thoughts. There's only three verses this morning. The the Logos, the introduction of Jesus. So here's what John does. He says, let me introduce you to Jesus. Let me tell you who Jesus is. And he starts with this, in the beginning was. I underline the word was because that's absolutely important. Was the word. So what John is saying to you and I is this, that when the beginning began, the word was already there. When the beginning began, the word was already there. That the word that he speaks of here predates time and creation. It predates Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. It's important that you and I understand this to move forward in a real understanding of Christ and that of the incarnation. Because the word is not just the beginning, but it is the beginning of the beginning. You say, Mark, you have said the big word beginning a lot. I know, but it helps us to make sense of all this. That it is a being. It is not an idea. It's not an intrinsic thought. But it is a being is what he says. It is a being was there in the beginning before anything else had begun. And then he says, in the beginning was the word. Who? He says, I'm going to tell you who that beginning was. I'm going to tell you who the Lagos is, is what he says. And this word logos has such major meaning because it can mean word and it can mean reason and it means so much for so many people. And you say, Mark, how does so much become encapsulated into one powerful word? It is strange, isn't it? Because as if you've read this verse many times or you've heard this text so many times, it's easy to brush over this logos word, this the word. Small things in Scripture can mean great things to you and I. So Reba and I, we were down in Pensacola, Florida with our son. And this week he performed with a choir in Pensacola. And they performed their concert on Handel's Messiah. If you've never heard Handel's Messiah, it's an amazing experience. And you need to go if you can. But he lives just down the street from the beach. And so in his yard in Florida... Growing in the sand are these things. Have you ever stepped on one of these? Sand spurs, yes. 
God created all things except the mosquito and the sand spur. Amen? Right? Yeah, no, he did. And so, these things are everywhere. And then if you get them on your shoes and you take them into his house, that in his bedroom, Reba and I stayed one night with him. We threw him out, put him on the couch, and we stayed in his bedroom. And that's what parents can do, right? And, and so we did that. And he has this big rug in there. And he bring, you bring these things on your feet. And you get up in the middle of the night. And you walk around the dark. And all of a sudden, you find one of these, right? Yes. I call these sanctification testers is what these are. Because if you're going to ever cuss in your life, you're going to step on one of these and something's going to come out, right? You have, well, some of you, that's far beyond you. I know, okay? But for everybody else, right? And so you take, you step on one of these things. How can something so small? I actually dropped one right here, first service. It's still here. I left it for the worship team thinking, might one of them come out barefooted? We might actually get to experience the test, right? Yes, on the microphone, yeah. So how does something so small have such a great effect on your life? Now, when you step on one of these, right, sometimes it's just as painful to dig it out of your foot because then it sticks your finger and everything else. Well, interesting how the Lord works that I got up this morning, got ready and put my socks on and then slid my foot inside my shoe and I stood up and all of a sudden there was this excruciating pain from the end of my foot and I'm here in Anderson, South Carolina. I take my shoe off and guess what is in the end of my shoe? A sand spur. A gift from our son for kicking him out of his bed and putting him on the couch. Maybe, I don't know, right? The point is this. That what we find in Scripture, and this is why it's so important as we say here at Hope Fellowship that context is everything. That when we look at these Scriptures and we take them apart and we look at the language that is used there, what we realize that just brushing over them initially and reading them sometimes does not give us the depth that a pool needs for an elephant to swim in. But this word does. Because this word meant something very different to the Jews and to the Greeks. And both Jews and Greeks would read this gospel. So to the Jews, ah, this was a word they used for God. In fact, in the book of Exodus chapter 18, when that of Moses calls the people of God to meet God, he calls them to meet the word of God. So it is a word, logos, that is used by the Jews to refer to God himself. But to the Greeks, very different meaning for them. Because Lagos was a word of power. It was the power that brings sense to the universe. That kind of brings balance to everything. It keeps the universe from spinning off into some kind of oblivion of chaos. It's the power that sets the world in perfect order. The Lagos was known as the ultimate reason that controlled all things. So what is John doing? He's using a word that both Greeks and Jews would understand and they would connect to. So what is he doing? He's building a bridge with this world viewpoint of this eternal principle of Lagos behind everything. The Jews see it as God. The Greeks see it as some greater entity in the universe. And a principle that's not wrong would, in itself, but very misled, I think. But both Jews and Greeks 
are about to be informed of what the Lagos is. And what I realize is this. What John is doing, he's reminding us of a characteristic of God that's so much about Advent. In fact, it is pretty much the definition of Advent. That God meets you and I where we are in this life. That God meets us where we are, even if we're like the Jews and we see Lagos as being God, or we're like the Greeks that see Lagos as being the ultimate reason in the universe that brings everything together and keeps everything from flying off into chaos, that God meets us exactly where we are in life. Understand that. He meets us where you are. He chose these terms so that both Jews and Greeks would connect with something they already had an understanding of. So he chose this term to reach both believers and skeptics. That's why John chapter 1 is so important and so applicable for you and I on Advent. Because it reaches both believers and skeptics about who Jesus is. And it talks about the incarnation and gives us the understanding that you and I need to to walk through and to grasp that of the incarnation. And what he says is this. He says, you have this idea. You've been talking about this for a long time, about this Lagos. Let me tell you who it is. Let me tell you who the word is. And he says then that the word is Jesus. It's not an idea, but yet it is absolutely a person. It is a person. And he explains to both groups Jesus in terms that they already understood. And then he says, buckle up. Because once you get that idea of who the, the Lagos is, then I want to share something else with you. And he says, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We've established who the word is, the Lagos is, and the word is God in the form of Christ, in the form of Jesus. John says, let me talk to you about something that's so basic to your Christian faith that you need to hear it one more time. And he talks to us about the Trinity, is what he does. And I think even more specifically about the relationship between the Father and the Son. So I want you to bear with me for a moment because I want to talk to you about the Trinity. You say, Mark, this is like the beginning of Advent season. I wanted to come and hear about the six-pound, three-ounce baby Jesus that's in the manger with a blue-hued light that shines over him that where mom and dad are there and all the angels are around and you got the shepherds in the front and all the animals are cleaned like you just bathed them all. And that's the kind of story I want. And John says, wait a minute. If you're going to really understand who came for you, then first you have to understand who he is. And then you have to understand his relationship with his father. So in the beginning is where he starts. In the beginning, this being is known as the Word, that he is eternal. It's for the begin- before the beginning that he existed. In the beginning. And then he says, the Word was God. That this being is God. Not an idea, not an angel, not a created being, because he has always existed eternally. So in the beginning, the Word was God So this being is God. And then he says, the word was with God. In the beginning, the word was God and the word was with God. So this being does not 
encompass all that God is. There's something more here is what he's trying to tell us. It's where he reveals this relationship between the father and the son. And the father and son are equally God, yet distinct in their person. That the father is not the son. The son is not the father. That they are equally God with God the Holy Spirit, comprising one God in three persons. Boom, your brain just explodes, right? It all oozes out your ears. I can't really grasp all of this, Mark. And no, you were not intended to grasp all of this. This is the awe of God. This is the majesty of God. This is who he is. If you could put him in a nice little box in your life, then you would think that you could be able to control him. You cannot control this God, amen? You can't. And so what he does, he says, let me establish with you a characteristic of God, his vastness, his absolute greatness, that God exists out of the space and time continuum, that God simultaneously exists in our past, in our present, in our future, is what he does, that there are no limits to this God because he is eternal. And then he brings it to where he wants you and I to be, I think. And that is, he brings us to this eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. Because it's important for you and I to understand in the incarnation and the gift of the Word that the Son is not a creation of the Father. That that relationship is central to the Gospel. To understand that all Jesus does and all Jesus says. And so he says, the word was with God. It's more than geography. It's more than just them being in proximity to one another. The word was with God is a, is a reference to a relationship. Understand, a relationship between a father and a son. And the word was God, an identity of being between them. So that Jesus is not some form that the Father created in order to sin, to simply clean up the mess of our lives and to make good on a promise that he made in the book of Genesis. That's not it at all. This is a real relationship. Understand that. This is what John wants you to see, that the gift of the word in that of the incarnation is a real relationship between a father and a son. It's not that the Father created some angelic being and he sent that angelic being to this earth for the specific purpose of rescuing you and I because that would never work. And I'll tell you why. Because what needed to be done in my life and your life could only be done by a being that was sinless. Why? Because God is holy and God cannot look on sin so this sacrifice and covering for you and I had to be sinless. And angels are not sinless because we know what happened with Satan. So angels are not sinless. So an angel would not work. And so what happens here is this is Jesus, the Son of God, the only Son of God who makes his way to this earth, clothes himself in flesh and redeems you and I. You see, John wants you to feel the weight of the incarnation. He wants you to understand that this was a real eternal relationship between a father and a son. I had three sons. And to think that I would give one of them 
for anybody in this room is mind-boggling to me. But you have a father who gave his only son for people who were disobedient and living in rebellion against him to the point that he could not even look on them because of their sinfulness. And that is the love of the father. And if you try to absorb some ideas about the incarnation and you miss these ideas, you miss these truths, then you have not done the incarnation justice. If you divorce it from a relationship between a father and a son, you have devalued, you have devalued the incarnation. That's what makes this the most beautiful verse that you could use in that of Advent season. Because it paints the proper picture for you and I of what this means in Advent. Because Advent is about a person, not an event. It's about Jesus, who is a Logos, who is that of the Word. It's like receiving a gift at Christmas And you get this gift and you open it and it's a very extravagant gift that somebody has purchased for you. And you look at it, you acknowledge that, you thank them for it. And you push the gift to the side and you don't value the gift like you should. And I think that sometimes during this season for you and I, it's a struggle. Because what we do, we fall in love with the packaging, but we fail to see the substance of the season. The Lagos, we fail to see the word. You say, oh, Mark, so this is a time, as most preachers do, that you're going to kind of beat us up for doing all the things we do during the Christmas season. Can I tell you, I'm as Christmassy as anybody else in the room. I love it. I love the trees. I love the music. I love all of those kinds of things. I do. I love I love Christmas music in, in general uh, on the way down to Pensacola and the way back this week, Reba and I listened to Christmas music all the way down and all the way back. And I tried to find all these artists that, uh, that does Christmas music differently, and we listened to them. And so on the way back, I found one. I don't know if you've ever listened to Nora Jones. Anybody ever listen to Nora Jones? Yeah, good. We call her around our house Snora Jones. Now, you know why? Because if you listen to it long, you're going to become so relaxed Right with her voice, and she's extremely gifted and talented. She has this way of just bringing relaxation to you, and you just kind of relax. And so I listened to that for a while, and I'm driving. I thought this is probably not a good idea, right? Yeah, because naps are not a great time when you're driving. So I encourage you to listen to the album. It's 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 a great Christmas album as well. But what I realize is that this is about a person, not an event. That every event that you and I share in this year should focus on that of the Word, the Logos, that of Christ. And we paint that picture of Him as a gift to you and I, given by a loving Father who feels the same way about His Son that I would feel about my three sons as well. And if we don't paint with that brush... We have missed the incarnation. We have missed the power of the gift of Christ. Augustine says that the incarnation is God's accommodation to human limitations. 
It's God's accommodation to human limitations. That God adjusts himself to us because we cannot adjust ourselves to him. The incarnation of Christ is an accommodation of us on behalf of God. And I thought, well, how do I illustrate that this morning? And so I thought about this from a conversation I had with someone this weekend. And this is football championship weekend, right? And for some of you, your team won and you're all happy. And for the others, when your team loses, you're like every other football plan and football player, uh, or I should say spectator, right? And, and you always say, well, it's just a game and nothing more than a game. But you don't feel that way when you win, do you, right? Yes, that's true. And so let me use a football analogy for you. That on this stage is a football field. There are end zones on both ends. Down on this end is your end zone. And this is a spiritual football field because on the other end of the field, in that end zone is Jesus, the Logos, the Word. And Jesus so loves you that he wants to be with you, but separating you and him is this giant field. On this field are all kinds of oppositions for you to get to him, and you are not talented enough, player, or gifted enough to get to him. So he's over here, And he calls you because he desires to be with you. You've tried to take this step out on the field before, but you know that it doesn't work and you fail every time. And so what Jesus does, because he desires to be with you, that he moves to the middle of the field, to the 50-yard line, and he looks down in your end zone and he says to you, Hey, I've come halfway for you. At least you can simply come halfway and meet me in the middle of the field and then we'll be together. Can I tell you something? That is the most dangerous theology that you'll ever buy into. Understand that. Because there's nothing that you could have done. Humanity could never have left its end zone ever and made its way to Jesus. So what Jesus does that he moves all the way to your end zone to be with you. He comes all the way. And I want to tell you, some of you are living that theology of, well, God came halfway, I'll do my part and come the other. And can I tell you, it's an absolutely destructive way to live your life because it's based on how good you are and how much that you can, excuse me, earn God's acceptance within your life. The story of the incarnation is that he came all the way to you. Anything outside of that is to devalue and to somehow try to paint the incarnation with your own brush and it never ever works. He came to us. He accommodates us. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. He accommodates us. Here's what it says. That when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, 
Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what God had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes from the book of Isaiah. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because you see, we can read that as the Advent story, and it means one thing to us. But when you lay the gospel of John chapter 1 over this story, it makes it so much richer. It does. To realize the gift of the word, the word that existed before the beginning, the word who is God, the word who is with God, that is the relationship between Jesus, the Son, and the Father, that that is the gift that God sent to you and I out of his great love for us. And when you lay that over this, the, the Advent story, it adds so much powerful depth to all of this for you and I, that she shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. God accommodates us. The word, the logos, Jesus, the son of God for you and for me. And then he goes on to say, Verse 3, last verse, only three of them this morning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so I just come up with this thought, what Jesus does, no one else can do, that this is not a story about God as this preeminent creator who wants to create other preeminent beings to come and to rescue you and I. And John absolutely goes to this painstaking uh, detail for you and I to to. Just cast out that kind of thinking. It's not that at all. But the Lagos was never created. And then he says, but nothing came into being without him. This is important. It takes us back to a a passage in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 14. It says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Let me me share with you a theological term. That Jesus is the very agent of creation. That he's the very agent of creation Because what John says and what Paul says, that all things were created through him. They were created through him. That he is more than just the creator, but he is the very substance in which all things are created and all things continue to exist. That in him is the fullness of the Godhead. Here's John's point. That he could just leave us with this understanding of who Christ is. 
But he wanted to take us, secondly, to, to what Christ does in our lives. That he created and spoke everything into existence. He sustains everything by his word today. Can I tell you, God as being the agent of creation, that role that he plays has never changed. Because what he does in my life and your life, he takes the brokenness of our lives and mends them. He takes those moments of our life when we are dead in our sin and our trespasses and he resurrects us. He recreates you and I. He brings life to us. That yes, he existed before the beginning. That we realize that he is God. That we realize that he is continual unity and fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. And that would be enough fuel for you and I to run on. Yes, it would. But then John says, wait, let me tell you something about what he does. He's the very agent of creation. And he's still creating in my life and your life. From the brokenness, the ruins, he he recreates. That's the story of Advent. So, a lot of you know my love for C.S. Lewis. In one of C.S. Lewis's books called Miracles... He writes about the incarnation. And as he so capably does, he uses this analogy of a deep sea diver. And I read a little bit of that, and there's not great detail, but my imagination began to add to his story. So C.S. gave me permission to add to it, okay? And so I want to share that with you. What is he going to say? He's dead, so, you know, why can't I, you know... And so I take this thought from him, and here's the story. There's a father and son team on a boat who launch out from the dock one day to make their way into the vastness of the sea. The father and son have an amazing relationship. They love each other beyond words. But they know, they know that there is a treasure that lies at the deepest depths of the ocean. And they have such a desire to recover that treasure. So they sail to the middle of the vast ocean. The sun is equipped, who is the diver, with the deep sea diving suit, the helmet, the, the suit, uh, pressurized oxygen that comes from the boat. The father looks at him and he looks at the father and all of a sudden the son begins to take the suit off. He removes the helmet and he disconnects the oxygen 
hose, he takes the diving suit off until he's just flesh. The father looks at the son and the son looks at the father as a father would look at a son as he knows that his son may never survive the depths to recover the treasure. And so the son dives from the boat into the warm, blue-green, clear waters of the ocean. But the water doesn't stay warm very long, nor does it stay clear. And as he dives deeper and deeper, the water begins to get colder and colder, and it's darker until it obliterates the sun from the surface. But the sun keeps diving deeper. He feels the pain of the pressure. His lungs are about to explode. His limbs are not working like they should, but he keeps swimming because of his love and desire to reach the treasure. And he reaches the murky, slimy, death-filled bottom of the ocean. He grasps the treasure. But it's not enough just to grasp the treasure. But his desire has always been, because it was always his father's desire, to return the treasure to the surface, to bask in the sunlight for which it was created. And so the sun, with all of his might, pushes off from the seafloor and he begins to ascend. But as he ascends, the pressure pushes in on him to the point that his lungs burst. But he continues to swim. And he breaks the surface and he holds that piece of treasure that's covered in slime and decay from the ocean. But he holds it up to the Father. And for the first time in Thousands of years, the father sees the treasure again. And it's all worth it because of the love the father has for the treasure. You see, you're the treasure. And outside of seeing Advent... Like that story, you miss the depth of it. That nothing, no depth or ocean, no peril or danger, no pain or death itself would keep Jesus from making it all the way to your end zone to rescue and to restore and to recreate you as his child because he is the agent of creation. So what do you do with a story like that? It changes everything about us. Everything. Because Advent 
is about a person. It's not about an event. So can I pray with you for a moment? Could you take a posture of prayer? Whether it's bowing your heads, closing your eyes, or just sitting there silently. Just opening your heart and mind to the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Father God, where do we start in our conversation with you today about Advent and the Incarnation? That Father, you loved us so much that you sent the Word, the Logos, who has coexisted with you before the beginning of time as we know it, who is God, whom you love as a father would love his son. You sent him for us. For those of us who who have rebelled against you, for those of us who think we know more than you do at times in life, that you journeyed from your end zone to ours when we could never make it out to you. And you accommodated us. That is the gift of the word. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. You came in full obedience to your Father and you came out of love for us as your creation, as being the agent of creation. But you didn't come, Jesus, just to say that you came to this earth and you lived and died and you rose, but you came to rescue us, to return us to the state that we were originally intended and that is to have fellowship with you and the Father. So God, help us today to see Advent for what it is. To see the incarnation and the gift of the word for what it is this morning. And let it change us. Let it change who we are. So, Lord, may every song be different from today and every ornament that's placed on a tree and every light that is enjoyed in every festive event that we attend and every gift that is given and received may all be painted with the brush of the word because this is about a person, not an event. And we thank you, Father, for that in your name. So for a moment, could you just keep your heads bowed? Stay focused for just a minute. Because how can I talk about the incarnation without giving those of you that are skeptics in the room an opportunity to respond? For those of you that are here because it's Advent season and you're here just to do the thing that we do in the South and go to church. Hey, we're glad you're here. But you feel a void in your life. Can I tell you, 
that you were created with a void in your life that only God can fill, that void of eternity. And the only thing that can fill that is the word, the logos. You say, but Mark, I don't understand all of this. I don't understand all the things that you have said about the Trinity or the Incarnation. But I think you can understand one thing, and that one thing is enough, that you can understand how a father would love a son. And there had to be something about the love of a father that he would send his son for those that rebelled against him to die. And you can wrap your mind around that. And that's enough to realize that God loves you that much. So today is the day for you to accept that love into your life. So maybe you can pray something like this. God, I had no idea you loved me like you love me. God, I don't understand why you would send your son. But if you love me that much, then God, I want you to fill me with that love. So God, forgive me for my rebellion in my life. Rescue me. Put the pieces back together. Recreate what this world has broken in my life. And Father, I confess you as Lord and Savior. In your name, amen. I pray that this changes the way that you see everything this season. And it enhances your ability to celebrate. It doesn't limit, but it enhances your ability to celebrate in the light of the gift of the word. Would you stand with us for a moment of worship before we leave this morning?